When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I've really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. I've spent my life chasing adventure in the mountains. I moved to Alaska when I was 19 and became an adult climbing the Chaussee Chugach outside of Anchorage. I loved life in Alaska. I loved the way the snow felt like polystyrene under my boots and how my eyelashes would freeze together in the still night air. I loved that a moose blocking the bike path on my commute to work was a valid reason for being late. I loved that I could step outside of my front door cross a single road, and then walk to the top of a mountain, picking my house out among the crisscross of streets below. It wasn't where I grew up, but I fit there. It felt like where I belonged. After almost a decade in the last frontier, I started to feel restless again. A weekend camping wasn't enough. I wanted to go for months. I wanted to explore other states and walk across national parks. I read through hiking blogs obsessively, slacking off at work in favor of gearless and permits. Through hiking started to feel like a compulsion. I had to hike, the same way I had to breathe. So I quit my job, left Alaska, and found myself with a gaggle of other through-hiker hopefuls, sleeping fitfully at a trail angel's house in San Diego, ready to start the Pacific Crest Trail the next day. I met him, before we even started hiking, sitting across the living room from me in that trail angel house. He was tall, handsome, and charming, and calm, a counterpoint to my nervous energy. He was dressed entirely in grey, but was still somehow the most colourful person in the room. He cracked jokes and I thought, this is someone who would be fun to hike with. We spent the next five and a half months hiking together. I fell head over heels in love with that ribbon of dirt, unwinding from Mexico to Canada, over desert and forest 
and high mountain passes. I fell asleep at night with my head on his shoulder, watching the stars wink into existence overhead. And I fell in love with Steve, too. I was tired and dirty. My feet were blistered and achy. I was hungrier than I'd ever been in my life. My pack chafed and rubbed until my back was bruised. But I was the happiest I'd ever been. Then we hit the Washington border. We had just 500 miles left until we finished. Every step no longer felt like an accomplishment. It felt like a ticking clock counting down. I didn't want to finish. I didn't want this to be over. I didn't want to go back to sleeping in a real bed and paying bills and sitting in traffic. But most of all, I didn't want to say goodbye to him. We hadn't even had to talk about what would happen when the hike was over. We didn't need to. I lived in Alaska. Steve lived in Ontario. The sheer mileage between our homes would make a relationship impossible, even without a barter and visas and so much red tape to keep us apart. We could walk two and a half thousand miles together, but a real relationship seemed impossible. In the end, he left me. In Vancouver, getting into a taxi for the airport, I doubled over on the sidewalk, trying to hide my face as the cab drove away. My heart broke into a thousand tiny pieces. I thought I'd never see him again. The next summer, I started the Continental Divide Trail. He met me at the U.S.-Mexico border where the trail begins. We hadn't seen each other in six months, but nothing had changed. He walked next to me for 200 miles, then left to go back home. I turned north and hiked to Canada alone. I faced snowstorms and mountain lions, and the aching loneliness of not seeing another human being for days at a time. I found that I was stronger than I'd ever thought I could be. I thrived on independence. I was responsible for my own mistakes and successes. I didn't need anyone else. We continued this pattern for a few more years. I'd pick a through hike, and he'd join me for a section. He'd fly to Anchorage. I would fly to Ottawa. We couldn't be together, but we couldn't be apart either. Our relationship was becoming as much a compulsion as through hiking ever was. I did some research into emigrating and started to realize just how much I'd have to give up. We'd have to get married. I wouldn't be able to leave Canada for at least a year. I'd be separated from my family and friends and the mountains that I love. I wouldn't be able to work for at least six months. I would be financially dependent on him. I would lose the fierce independence that I'd cultivated as a solo female through hiker. 
In the end, I didn't have a choice. I had to move. The same way I had to through hike, and I have to breathe. We got married in our hiking trail runners. I tried to settle in and love this new place I find myself in. I don't think moving to a new country is ever easy, and I'm incredibly privileged to even have the opportunity to relocate. Still, I struggled. Not working makes it difficult to meet people, and Ottawa is a government town, short of the dirtbags and outdoorsy types that I easily connect with. Ontario is also pancake flat. The Adirondacks are only a two-hour drive away, but my visa meant that I couldn't cross the border. Homesick, lonely, and sad. I miss my friends and my family. But most of all, I miss the mountains and the freedom I felt there. I'd expected to have to put parts of my life on hold, but I thought I could handle it. Not working was a problem, but the loss of independence was far bigger. I felt like I'd left my identity behind in the mountains. I'd gone from starring in my own adventure story to not even having a speaking part. I'd given up too much. Still, my immigration application moved along. I could eventually work again. I told myself things would get better. We had a two-month trip to the Canadian Rockies planned, hiking along the Continental Divide. I could make this work. And then, like everyone else in the world, COVID upended my life. Overnight, I went from booking campsites and making itineraries to being unable to leave my house. The tentative acquaintances I'd made vanished once we could no longer socialize. I felt lost. I'd been foolish to think I could fit in in Canada. I spiraled down, watching our summer plans evaporate in closure after closure. I loved my new husband dearly, but how could that be enough when I was separated from everything else I cared about? Love can only do so much, and I began to doubt if my sacrifice was worth it. I wanted to be my own person again, sleeping under the stars. I'd made a huge mistake moving here. My husband knew how hard it was for me. He held me while I cried, but he seemed just as powerless as I was to fix anything. I shouldn't have doubted his ability to improve my world. I'd been the one to make the sacrifices to have our relationship work, but he'd moved heaven and earth so we could be together. You have to be incredibly stubborn to through hike, and he refused to quit just as much as I did. He found the solution in a little white canoe. The canoe wasn't much to look at. She used to be a rental. Her hull was covered in scratches, some poorly disguised with white paint. Her yoke was rotting, water seeping under the old varnish so it bubbled up and flaked. The seats creaked and flexed alarmingly, but she was beautiful to me. Ontario might not have a single mountain, but the landscape is dotted with lakes, linked by rocky and rooty portages, as tough as any section of the Appalachian Trail. As quarantine restrictions lifted, 
we found ourselves driving to Algonquin Park almost weekly. As we put our new canoe in the water and took those first few paddle strokes, I felt my heart lift. Something magic happened after the third or fourth paddle stroke. The canoe started to glide effortlessly, cutting through the water like scissors through wrapping paper. It was silent. It was easy. My mind went blank, as still as the water. A loon called. It sung wild as a wolf howl. Canoeing isn't the same as watching a trail disappear over the horizon, twisting and turning over ridges and passes. But my soul felt the same lightness as the lake opened up in front of me. Our first portage had more moose hoof prints than human footsteps. We set up our tent on the shore of a distant lake. The stars winked into the dusk, just like they had on the PCT, while distant wolves howled. We spent one night in Algonquin, then three, then booked a week-long trip. It wasn't a through-hike, but I started to recognise the maple and the tamarack shading the portages. I could tell the difference between loons and mergansers just by the splashing noises they made outside our tent. We found the moose and bear that I'd missed so much. I began to feel that connection I'd lost. Maybe it's cliché to move to Canada and find your sense of identity in the bow of a canoe, but it's where I rediscovered part of what I thought I'd left behind in Alaska. This isn't my wilderness. It's still foreign to me, but it's starting to feel like home. It's hard to find independence in a tandem canoe, but maybe I don't miss it as much as I thought I did. Instead, we have a new ease of movement together. He steers while I navigate. I set up the tent while he cooks. I carry our gear while he takes a canoe on portages. It works seamlessly. We barely have to talk. When a storm whips the lake into white caps or thunder splits the sky, there's no argument about continuing or waiting it out. We're as in sync as our paddle strokes. When the world goes back to normal, we'll return to the mountains. Maybe we'll hike as close together as we paddle, just a few feet apart. Maybe I'll want more space. But I know when the snow comes down the mountains and we have to go back to Ontario, I won't find it as hard. It's not where I thought I'd want to be. But maybe it can still be home. I'm Eloise Robbins. And this is my short. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends, and friends of friends of friends, which basically means you, our community. 
If you have a compelling idea for a guest or a story lead, please give us a shout. You can use the submission form at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. Music today from Kai Engel, Ken Christensen, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the artists themselves or Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Becca Call, Ashley Langholz, and Cordelia Zars. Artwork by Anya Miller. Becca Call is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Call, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.